Well, welcome this morning to you guys. Um, Not to be confused, we are the Saints in New Orleans. Not to be confused with the New Orleans Saints. There's a little difference there. We're going to be doing the business of the Saints in New Orleans. And later this afternoon, the New Orleans Saints will do some business. All right? Well, this morning, if you guys are joining us, um, maybe you weren't here last week, we are preaching through a series, the beginning of the year, that, how can I say this, I, I believe the Lord sometimes just wants to get all of our attention together on some issues that we're walking through together. And, you know, this, this is where I think this is so critically important for each and every one of us. Here, here's the reality of the lives that you and I are living. There is a God who has created everything. And he is telling his chosen story through this creation. So at any moment in time, the next page, if you will, of God's story is unfolding. That's what's going on around us in our world. And in God's plan, he has included you and me as characters in the story that he is writing. So, and this is where, and I'm going to highlight some things again this morning... That's a real subtle thing. And any of us here could agree with it. But can I just tell you, the world that you live in, the culture that you live in does not believe that. The culture is standing up to tell you to write your own story. And it says it in flowery, fluffy, neat kind of ways. It it pumps you up. It makes you excited. It, it, It tries to come along the things you've always dreamed and says... There is, you know, the sky is the limit. You can be and do anything you want to be and do. Just put your mind to it. And you'll hear that from everybody who wins an award, everybody who wins a big game. They're going to float that idea that every one of us, no matter how down and out you are, no matter how unimportant you are, you can have whatever you want to have. You just put your mind to it kind of a thing. Can I back away from that and say this? There is a God in all eternity who is writing the script of existence. And by his graciousness, he has included you and me as a part of that story to tell his great story. So the most important thing you and I could find out at any given moment is, is what's the author of my life written out for me to walk in and to discover? That's the most important thing about my existence. If that's true, there's a divine author who's made all this stuff to happen, then the most important thing is for me to discover that. And we call that as Christians, we call that discovering the will of God. And that should be something we're preoccupied with. So here here we have come to the new year, 2019. Here we are, we're just a few days into this this next chapter. This is the next chapter, right? We we block off our lives in yearly increments. And we're going to enter into the chapter of 2019. God is doing something. God is writing a story in 2019. God is including you and I in this great story. And this series called Vocabulary for Our Time, I've stolen that from the concept that most all of us should remember when we were in grammar school and you came to school on Monday and a new week was starting and the literature teacher pulled out. This week we're going to be studying this short story, turn to this page and what was at the top of that page was a a vocabulary list and you were going to learn about five or six new words. 
And it was critical that you learn the definition for them because they may have been foreign words. They may have been words that you don't really recognize or you don't really use. But if you're going to get the story this week we're going to be reading, you're going to need to know these words. All right, that's what this series is about. There are certain words that have fallen out of use in our culture or fallen into misuse in our culture. And and so we no longer own them and understand them the same way personally. But for us to do life in 2019, for you and I to venture into this script of life that God has for us in 2019, for us to walk in his purpose, to know the things that God has for us individually as a church on planet earth, there are some words that we have got to get right in our lives. And so we started last week with with the word present ourselves because that's, that's not happening in our world. And we're in danger, even as Christians and followers of Christ, of filling our lives up with so much, presenting ourselves to a lot of things in such a way that we, we stop presenting ourselves to God. And so we, we looked through a passage last week, we picked up that word, we picked up another word as well. But today I, I want to install another word for us, another critically important word for us. And, and it has to do with the, what on earth are we really doing here and even relating to this God? There's a deity out there and we are forming some way of interacting with him. What word are we going to use to describe that? Well, you know, if you did a religious survey today, and you guys have seen these surveys, and, and you ask people... You know, tell us about your belief or you give them categories and they choose something to describe what they believe. They, they typically choose categories like, well, you know, I'm, I'm Catholic or I'm, I'm Protestant or, you know, today it's kind of getting into different categories like I'm, I'm spiritual. You'll hear people say I'm spiritual but I'm not religious. All right, there is a, a rapidly increasing category called I'm, I'm none of those called the nuns, right? I'm going to tell you what that is in this quote in just a second. But interesting, now I've seen some of this, look at some books on this over the years, but for the first time in history, the other day when a new Congress was sworn in, for the first time in history, a person was sworn in under the category of nun. So by way of being a people who have religion in our lives, in our culture, in our country, The people who have served in Congress have always had some religious affiliation. Whether you agree with that religion or not, they believed in something above and beyond themselves. For the first time, a person was sworn in who said, no, none of the above. James Emery White in his book, Meet Generation Z, says, so who are the nuns? The short answer is that they are the religiously unaffiliated. When asked about their religion on various surveys and polls, they do not answer Baptist or Catholic or any other defined faith. They simply say, I'm nothing. The number of nuns in the 1930s and 40s hovered at around 5%. Do we have that chart? It's a little easier to read than this little chart here. Yeah. All right, this this is the nuns in our country. 1940s, 5% of the culture would have said, "I'm, I'm nothing religiously. I don't identify at all. All the way to 1990, it just inches up to 8.1%. And then you notice how fast it's starting to change? This is what I'm talking about in just terms of we and I live in a shifting culture. That your parents, and if you're a baby boomer, and, and you're, or you're older than that, you, you have not seen these kinds of shifts 
in your world. So th- things are changing rapidly. So 2008, 15%. Four years later, 19%. Two years later, 23%. And this is the really alarming... And I, I, I use that word carefully because in some ways I'm not alarmed. This is in some ways helpful. This, this is kind of... Uh, Serving up some reality for people who played in the category of religion, but really weren't on the right page anyway. But if you're under the age of 30 today in our country, 36% will identify as none of the above. Which means it's become much more common in our culture for people to figure out how to do life without any sense of need to look to God. Now, let me just say, I'm, I, I recognize on a Sunday morning, I'm, I'm preaching primarily to the church. There may be some folks here that you're not quite sure where you stand with God. But for the most part, these are folks who, you're here this morning because you want to follow God. But I want you to notice this and what I'm about to present and share with you. You are living in a culture that is figuring out how to do life in a way that it doesn't look to God. It doesn't look outside of itself. And When you and I look out at people doing life, that's what we see. And we learn something from them. They minimize the sense of need that I have and you have to look to God. It stops feeling like that's normal and needed in our lives, right? Another thought from James Emery White, he says, The heart of secularism is functional atheism. Rather than rejecting the idea of God, our culture simply ignores him. Or as Kathy Lynn Grossman concluded, people today aren't merely secularized. They're not thinking about religion and rejecting it. They're not thinking about it at all. This is a new and profound break with the history of Western thought and culture. Even among those times and places that might be called pagan, true secularity in this sense was unknown. Whether it was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or the gods of Greece and Rome, there were gods. Something outside of themselves that people looked to. It would have been alien to anyone's thinking to begin and end with themselves alone in terms of truth and morality. Which means there would never have been a sense in which such things were self-generated or self-determined. Not anymore. As a very basic concept... Man truly needs to look outside of himself. But what we have lived in a culture in our day has come to a place where that is masked, hidden, pressed down to where the culture looks like it doesn't need anything outside of itself. You don't need anything but you. You don't need to be accountable to anybody but you. You don't need anybody, anybody's ideas but yours. Those are all just personal matter of facts anyway. So, you know, if that guy wants it that way, that's good for him. You do what you want. You do what's right for you. You know how many people get counseled that way when they go through troubles in their life? They go see a counselor. And that counselor's number one priority today is to figure out what's right for you and let me get you to do that. It's, it's detaching us from bigger things and from things outside of ourselves. And, and listen, here's a great concern. I think I wrote this out in your outline. This brings enormous self-pressure. 
the amount of pressure on us as individuals to, to create a life that's purposeful, to find meaning in life. It's all on us now. You're not looking to God. You're not looking outside of yourself. You're not entering life going, I don't get this. What the heck is going on? This hurts. I will look to God and, and, and he'll offer you some insights and wisdom and an explanation to do life. No, no, our culture says, no, we don't need to do that. Well, then if you're not going to look outside of yourself, you're going to have to look in yourself to find these answers. And do you really think you're equipped to answer these questions? Any of us? How do you develop approaches to the complexities of life, right? In your outline there, I said, a life that's measured by time. Does that bother any of you guys yet? Time just seems to go by so quick. The things that you enjoy and love, poof, they're gone. Oops, that season's over. I can't believe another year has started. Have you started to do that sort of stuff in your life? I am. Like, I cannot believe how fast things go by. How, I mean, in the back of your mind, there's something else that's saying how fast this is all coming to an end. Or do you just ignore that voice? Because the passing of time, knowing that time is a limited thing in your life, means you don't have too much left, do you? And oh my gosh, if I got here this fast, I'm going to get to the rest of it really, really fast. How many of you old people in here would say it just gets faster the older you get? Let me see, raise your hands. I just wanted to see if y'all that were old, I knew that you were old or not. That's why I did that. And if your arms still worked, but... I, I couldn't raise this one some days of this past week. How about, how about offering an explanation for life with suffering in it? Pain in it. Death. Departure and loss in it. Well, remember, you're not going to look outside of yourself for answers to this. You, you go ahead. You come up with an answer for that. Life with, with conflicts in it and hostility in it and people other people's wills that are in the life with you and your will evil in this world that has its own rules that it plays by and its own motives to engage people in our world that we live in but can't look outside of me I got to come up with that for myself Can, can I tell you that that weight is crushing people today because what's coming with this mindset from that chart, I mean, I want you to follow. Remember that chart? Because we're looking less and less and believing less and less in God. And we're becoming much more secular. Listen to what's coming with it. Right? This, is, this is a little quote from the Center of Disease Control. Rachel Zimlick writes an article saying, Suicide rates increased in nearly every state between 1999 and 2016, right? It kind of follows these trends. According to a new report on suicide from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And in the article, it stated that more than 30% increase in suicide in over half the states in the United States. Relationship problems are listed as a top factor in suicides, followed by acute crisis events, substance misuse, and physical health problems. Deborah Stone, a behavioral scientist with the CDC, says, vital statistics data alone don't reveal causative factors in the uptick in suicide rates. 
Experts do know, however, that there is not just one factor involved in an individual's decision to take his or her life. It is typically caused by a combination of individual, relationship, community, and societal factors, Stone says. Let's face it, God invented a life for human beings that is way too complex, difficult, impossible for us to do without him. That's just a fact. God was intending to be in our world and in our lives a certain way. And this thing was never designed for you and I to be able to take God and tell him to go sit in the corner or take a vacation. We got this. And the result is popping up in the hopelessness of people's lives. And I think that's only going to continue to be on the rise. But what are we doing here though? Human beings. On planet Earth. What do we answer to? What what, what are we up up about? Even people who attend church don't always have good answers for that. They're attending church. They're going through some motions. But they don't always have a good answer for for why are you doing this? Why are you doing this today? Why are you in church today? I I don't have this quote up there. But James K. Smith wrote a book where he mentioned this. He said, people come to church and have no clue why. They sing a few songs, they listen to a sermon, they go back to their lives without any change. The problem is that they have no understanding as to why they are doing what they are doing. I can relate. I mean, I I came into an encounter with Christ that uh, we sing about when we use the word salvation, saved, coming into a connection with God. That happened for me when I was a teenager. But I lived enough life apart from God to be able to say, yeah, I, I exactly get that. I went to church. I was around moral boundaries. I was being steered. And there were certain rituals that I was supposed to go through and participate in. Those things did not touch the reality of my life at all. I was doing my own thing, my own way, disinterested in that. God rescued me by saving me because I was headed to a mess. I was going to make my world into a mess. And so here you are. Here the world is. Maybe even showing up in church. Why why are we doing this? What what is this ultimately about? Why, Why are we reading Bibles? Why are you taking time out of your Sunday morning? Come gather with other people. Have a talk about God. Talks that include things and words like repentance, prayer, develop some means of conversing with God and reading and changing, proclaiming the gospel. Why do we, why do, we do all this stuff? What, what is the grand purpose under which all of this stuff is sitting? Because we're going to venture into 2019 and it can just be another venture into another year full of religious sort of stuff that didn't make any difference. I'm no different now than I ever was. That shouldn't be able to be said of someone who really is in relationship with God. But there's a good, helpful relationship word that's in Scripture that we're going to add to our vocabulary list. It's the word worship. Worship. People even call these things a worship service. People go to a worship service. We use this word, right? Let me go back to that passage I looked at last week in Romans chapter 12. 
I can't unpack this because that would take way too long. But just remember, by the time you get to Romans chapter 12, Paul has taught an enormous amount in chapters 1 through 11 on issues and explanations about life and the world that we live in that are absolutely critical to understanding who you are, who God is, what's the agenda on the table before us. But when he gets to this passage and he's just presented all this rich revelation about the gospel, the good news of who God is and how he has sought us out to be in relationship, he, he then thrusts us into responding to that news. And, and, and can I just use that word respond for a second? That, that for, for, for many, religion is, is an atmosphere, a place that you go where you don't even pay attention to your response. Uh, listen, ignoring is a response. Casually curious is a response. Is it, is it the response that God is after? I say, no, God is after your worship. That's what God's after. And I'm going to show you that today. Romans 12, 1 says, I, Paul is speaking to just, just Christians trying to relate to God. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, by all that we've seen in these 11 chapters, to present, as we looked last week, your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What are we, what are we doing in this presenting? What are we doing in this relating? What are we doing in this learning of all this doctrine and truth? We are worshiping God. We are responding to God with Worship. We respond to God in all kinds of ways. In America, most people hire God as a consultant. That's what they do. They get in trouble, they get in a mess, and they welcome God to come present some ideas and be a consultant. Talk me through this. And then if we like his ideas, we go with some of them, or we twist them a little bit, or, or we ignore them. Like they can do when you hire a consultant. God's not looking to be anybody's consultant, though. He, he's looking to be worshipped. That's the response that God is looking for. So, so what exactly is worship? Well, I'm not just going to give you a definition for a word. I just want to meander through some insights from scripture. This is a big giant word. So I, there's no way I could unpack it really well this morning. But I just, want to, I just want to set a few thoughts in front of us today that I felt like the Lord wanted to highlight out of this. So what is worship? Let's answer that this morning. One, worship is created by God for God. All right, there is this little thing out there that, that got put into creation. You know, there's all these ingredients. There's, there's spiritual stuff. There's material stuff. There's people and plants and animals and mountains and water. There's, there's all this stuff in creation. But sprinkled in there like a, like a precious metal, hidden is this thing called worship. It is priceless. It is sought out. Perhaps in categories like gold and diamonds. I mean, it is a precious thing that is sought after. But here's what we know about it from Scripture it was created by God for God. All right, so we've got to be careful when we get around this thing. Exodus chapter 20, 
verse 2. If you're, if you're not familiar with the Bible, when I zero in and read from Exodus chapter 20, in this moment you're about to, to hear, this is where the, the Ten Commandments come into existence. right? So if you've never read the Bible before, that chapter, this moment, this explanation... And one of the reasons I love this, I want to point to this moment, is God gathers an audience to himself at a mountain called Mount Sinai. And he's going to explain some things to them. So this is a really cool moment because creatures are going to get an explanation from God that's going to explain all kinds of stuff like why you exist and who are you. That's important stuff for us, right? But, but you have to realize this. The people, the audience that he's gathering, they're the Israelites particular audience that God chose to reveal himself to in the Old Testament. But they've just come out of over 400 years as captives in the land of Egypt in a culture that no, long, no more knew the God of the universe than the man in the moon. They were clueless. They worshipped all kinds of gods and were totally confused about how to relate to the one true God. That's where they've been living for 400 years. So they're a little confused in this moment. And God's going to come introduce himself. Listen carefully. This is God's first words to them as an audience. Chapter 20 verse 2. God says, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. All right? You shall have no other gods before me. This is the first thing. You just met God. Just parked your car, got out and met God. First thing he wants to bring up with you. Hey, can we get some priorities right? I'm going to introduce myself to you, but I, I, I want to make first impression is I sit in a category by myself, exclusively, uniquely. Point number one. Make sure you don't forget this before we talk about anything else in the existence of the world. This, you have got to get right. So it's God's introductory moment. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the, under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. Right, what, what is God doing here? He is introducing himself and calling for a response. What's the response here? Worship. Your response to me, based on who I am, God says, is to worship me. And these are some of the ingredients. This is what worship is going to feel like. Worship is going to touch the matter of priorities that govern your existence. Now, when you go to do life, well, you know, where do we put stuff? What comes first? How do we order our lives? Well, God jumps into that category and says, no other gods before me. Don't put anything in your life ahead of me. That's the priority for you to make sure you've figured that part out. Nothing becomes more important to you than me, is the first point God establishes. And, and then he gets real practical. 
He says, you know, don't make any images that you're, that you're going to turn around and you're going to bow down to these images. In other words, you are creative creatures that I have made. Don't go creating something with your talent, your abilities, your resources. Don't create something that becomes so critical to you, so important to you, that, that you begin to engage it in a way that makes me slip off the stage. Don't do that first thing God says to man. This, this thing of worship is going to get stressed and strained. And other things are going to crowd into it. I wrote in your outline that worship is going to involve first significantly giving our attention and engagement. How do you know if you're worshiping God? Well, God says, you know, if you create other things and you give yourself that, they created images so that they could look at that thing and they can engage that thing. There's stuff you and I can create. Now, they created actual images. They were much more of an image-oriented culture back then. We're not. We're much more of an idea-oriented culture. Today, we create ideas and philosophies and we stare at them 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 and we turn our attention to them and we engage them and we let them influence our ideas. What will bring us to a good life? What will, what will bring security to us? What will make me feel safe? And those are ideas, right? Most of us don't have any tiki items in your house that you actually get up in the morning and you bow down to it. But we do have ideas, don't we? That we get up in the morning... And we look to that idea, whatever your idea is, that can compete with the uniqueness of who God intended to be. Worship's going to involve interesting, uh, what I'm going to call life gestures, right? You shall not bow down. Right? There, was a, there was a gesturing to the things that were created in this context. And you and I gesture to the things that we worship. We, we create sacred space for the things that we worship. We know where they are at all times. We, we posture ourselves toward them a certain We have a little bit of an attitude toward them. We protect those things. We make sure life can't encroach on that stuff. Nobody can encroach on those things. There are things that when people speak against some of these things that we have in these categories, we get our back all up, we attack other people over it. These are all gestures, right? Our life gestures and it gives away what it is that we are worshiping. And then he says in verse 5, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. When things creep into the worship category, we begin to serve them. And, and this is very, very practical. Right? Serving is just about giving up something that you kind of have limited commodity in. You only got a limited resource here. And so here's the reality. If you want to find out what you serve, you just need to look in three places. Your time, your energy, and your money. Those three things will give away what it is that we serve. I have a limited amount of time in my life. I'm going to give it to something. And that which has climbed its way up the ladder of most importance to me is going to get my time. It's going to get my energy, right? Energy is a little different than time. I think today people need to manage their energy every bit as much as they've got to manage their time. Your energy is your, you know, your, your mental availability, your emotions, right? You can only have so many emotional experiences in your life. You know that? You're finite creatures. So I've got to manage how emotionally wrung out, how, how invested I am, how exhausted I am because I'm just thinking and thinking and thinking and thinking. 
I'm investing that somewhere. And I'm doing the same thing with my money. There's a limited amount of money in my life. It enables my life in many ways. And so I'm going to put that somewhere. And certain things that I deem as very important that have crept into the worship category. Listen, you can use that word all you want. To indicate that worship is a worship service. Worship is what you do when you come to church. Can you understand God pointing out? No, no. Worship is what you do when you bow down and gesture to things. That's worship. When you serve something, that's worship. So you could come here and not bow down. And not gesture. And not make your time, your energy, or your money available. And can I just tell you? Whatever this was, it was not a worship service. That's just the facts. It's not until these things begin to happen. This is the God who's introducing worship to this group. That we are actually worshiping God. Fast forward from Mount Sinai all the way to the end of time. Revelation chapter 15 verse 2. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And also those who had conquered the beast in its image and the number of its name. Standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they... Sing the songs of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty, just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name for you alone. See that little phrase right there? Hold on to it. It belongs in a conversation with worship. There is a, by its nature, an exclusivity of worship that features these words. For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. All right, so fast forward from Mount Sinai, zip past 2019, into the future at some point, and all of creation is before this sea of glass, and they are doing what in all eternity? They are worshiping God. They are answering the longings of why they were created with all obstacles removed, all distractions done away with. This is where they stand. Singing, observing, responding to the character and greatness of God and delighting themselves in it. Now I know right now, I know. Unfortunately, that might sound really boring to some of us. Right? There's a lot of other stuff that we could get really, really jazzed about. But observing God and just going wow over and over and over again in some form or another. That doesn't make us go, hey, hey, where do I get a ticket for that? But yet it is what God has created us to do. We were created to worship him. And there will never be anything more satisfying, more deep, more lasting, more meaningful, more fruitful, more full of joy for God's created beings than that. And none of these guys are looking for a break. 
Hey, can I tap out here? Hey, would you mind coming and singing this next one for me? I'm going to take a break. I'm going to go back and smoke a cigarette or something. You know, that's, I don't see that happening around the throne of God. There is an absorption in, a delight in. Oh, and just for the sake, this is why this topic is so huge. I'd love to be able to chase a few thoughts. But notice, notice they are singing before God. They are singing before God. If you, if you move through your Bible, you'll notice singing has a unique place. In this context, worship has an aspect to it that's about singing. They're going to be singing before God for all eternity. And they're going to be singing songs that are about certain stuff. I don't think there'll be any Kanye, Coldplay. I'm not sure who's going to be on the, on the list there, but I don't think those guys are going to be on the list. And I'm not trying to tell you, oh, you can't ever listen. I'm just trying to encourage you, you might want to learn some of the songs that are going to be sung for all eternity. And you might want to show up in here on a Sunday uh, with a love for singing. Can I meddle just for a second here? Um, in this regard, because that, that term used to be uh, worship. That was what we, used to, we used to call that worship. That, that was a terrible misuse of that word. Because you're seeing here today, that word is a big word with a lot underneath it. But there is an expression of worship that comes out in singing that is unique, that God desires and delights in. If you and I give a rip about what it is that God enjoys, we should pay attention to these kinds of things. And I've told this story before, but if you're kind of new to the church, um, when I first came into the kingdom of God and got saved, I came into a church that sang, and you don't understand, I I was about 19 years old, I think, at that point. Um, I was a guy. I don't sing. Right? So I come into this setting and there's singing going on and... No, that's not happening. I'm not singing. Um, I'll stand here, I'll act cool, I'll do something, but I don't sing, I'm a guy. And, you know, it just took me a little bit of while to realize I have a screwed up value system. I have ideas that are wrong and that need to be displaced. And all I have to do is get around God's a little bit and realize, but he likes that. And he seeks for worship. To be expressed to him. And he gives us a variety of ways of doing that. But singing is one of them. So when you come in this meeting on a Sunday morning. You should never be quiet. You should sing with all of your might. And if you don't know these songs. Then then maybe unplug from Kanye and Coldplay. And learn some of these songs. So you can sing your guts out to the delight of God. Amen. Yes. But this, is, this, this passage in Revelation tells you, hey, where is everything going, guys? Where is it all going to land? It's going to land around a throne responding to God in worship. All right, second. I'm going to need to move here. Uh, worship is sought after by created beings. Worship exists, but it's sought after. It's craved. Creatures want this thing that God put, this precious thing God put out there, right? Remember Jesus' encounter with Satan in Matthew 4, verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. 
And Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it's written, You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. See, when you bring up worship to Jesus, that word only, exclusively, somebody owns the right to this. Only one owns the right to this. But the fall somehow made worship something that was attractive to creatures. Creatures somehow discovered this thing and were attracted to have it for themselves. However, they were never wired to receive worship. So it overloads their circuits and freaks them out all the time. But yet they still crave it. Satan in his pride, right? Pride was found in his heart and he noticed some things about himself, things that God had done that made him an impressive creature. And he longed to turn the worship from God to himself. Listen, you and I will follow the same traits. What is it about me that makes me unique and special and noticeable? How can I turn worship toward me? Creatures begin to love this idea, right? I think I put this in your outline there. What talent do I have? What unique trait do I have? Who do I know? What about me charms others, right? You know, I I hear comments. People say how pretty I am, how funny I am. They laugh hysterically at my jokes. I quickly learn. That sets me apart. That raises me above others. Let me begin to seek these things because they they bring a form of worship to me. Can I just say, when that form of worship arrives to you, you won't know what to do with it because you were never intended to be the object of worship. Only God is wired to be able to handle worship. That's the right place for it. It is a merciless, relentless task once you start down that road trying to get your world and your people around you to worship you. And some of you just need to, I'm going to just give you the ugliest, you know, the worst reason for you to seek worship is that it's not yours. And it steals from God. And that's the worst reason. But if you need a selfish reason for it, sometimes the people around you figure out long before you do that you're seeking their worship. And that's just plain embarrassing. When you start working people and charming people and they start figuring that out and you don't, and you're in every moment with people working the room, working them, phrasing things a certain way. Doing stuff in a certain way that is going to somehow draw attention to you. And when, when you start getting overlooked and no one tends to notice that you were in the room or contributed or they quote somebody else. You ever have somebody do that? I have people do that to me constantly. They say something and they ascribe it to one of the other guys. Yeah, I remember when, uh, when Evan said or when Peter said, and I'm sitting there thinking, I said that. <laughs> and it's like, well, welcome to being nobody, pal. <laughs> and, and that's what Satan did, right? God made him incredible. And somehow, instead of him looking at his creation and going, isn't God incredible? He said, I'm not too bad. That's all it takes. And you're down the road and you're seeking to be worshipped. Listen, 
Satan thought worship was transferable. He thought he could, he could have it for himself. Jesus treats worship like it's not transferable. It belongs exclusively to one. And he shares it with no one, rightly so. But here's a very helpful thing that he says. When he phrases that, he says, him alone shall worship him alone. Him alone shall you serve. This is very, very helpful. See, when you and I live our life toward God to get worship right, our serving, because remember, that's what he said, you shall not bow down or serve. When Jesus, when, when, when God introduces worship to humanity, that word has, a, has serving in it. As a matter of fact, the word in Romans is a different word for worship, and it's got serving tucked inside of it. So, Worship has a serving dimension to it. I I give myself to the one of highest value and I, I serve his interest. But let's face it, him alone shall you serve. Should anybody walk out of this building and go, all right, I'm quitting my job. Uh... Last, I won't ever cut the grass again around the house. Uh, Babe, do your own dishes from now on. Not helping. Uh, You heard Keith this morning. Him alone shall you serve. Uh, Well, the reality of our lives is that we are called by God to serve all kinds of people. We're supposed to serve. It's, It's part of the created order for who we are. But here's a little revelation that some of us have been serving and wearing ourselves out and not enjoying serving because we missed this point. Ultimately, ultimately, who do you serve when you serve? You serve him. Can I just tell you what a radical difference that will make in your life? Because when you lose that and you try to serve others, why are you serving them? If it's not for him, needs of the situation just demanded it. Something that they do back to me, their response in gratitude or deep appreciation or the sense that I'm making a difference in their life motivates me to serve them. Is, is that what's happening? Do you understand how short that's going to be of a run of serving? How resentful we will become? you understand some people will never be served by you because they don't deserve to be served by you? They're repulsive, they're difficult, they're selfish, they're prideful. They make your skin crawl when you get around them. You understand, you won't serve those people unless you're ultimately serving God. Then you can serve anybody, can't you? Because my act of worship is to serve him by serving you, whoever you are. And when you stop motivating me to serve you and you stop being pretty enough or interesting enough or the right people group so that I can be seen in the selfie with you or whatever it is that makes me want to serve you. When you stop being all that or you maybe never were that. Maybe you're just down and out. Maybe you're grungy to get around. Maybe you got bad ideas. Maybe you're a lot of work. Maybe you are the picture next to the word inconvenient. That's you. You are just inconvenient to be around. In that moment, I I got no motivation to serve you. Unless, ultimately, I am worshiping God by serving him. Now, I can be with anybody. I can be in your world on any day, for any reason, at any moment. Wouldn't the body of Christ be mind-blowingly amazing if that were true among us? Wouldn't it? If all the conditions for why I'm going to treat you a certain way, why I'm going to speak to you a certain way, why I'll make room for you or not, 
If all those conditions could get stripped down and we were in each other's world because we serve the one that we worship and he has put you in my world and I serve you because you are there. Do you understand? The body of Christ would be an amazing place to be, wouldn't it? This is why you can come to church and not worship God. This is a matter of worship that's being described here. All right, last thing here. Wow. What time are we doing here? All right, I'm going to try and do this quickly, and I hate to assume this because I don't assume everybody here has read every bit thing in the Bible, but John chapter 4, you can turn there with me, or you can, I believe the screen will have some of these passages. John chapter 4 is a story that many of us have heard bits and pieces of it throughout our lives, so I'm, I'm going to bank on a little bit of that. Jesus is going to show up in this story at a well, and he's going to meet a woman. This is a story of the woman at the well. The Samaritan woman that Jesus encounters at the well. A lot of stuff is going to get talked about. But what I want you to notice is that this conversation is going to land. It's going to end up in the category of worship. Of what is worship? What is not worship? What does worship do? How does God feel about worship? So you're going to start a story here about a woman with a very broken life. And I just want to install this thought as we start to read here. Broken lives are very often the display of broken worship. You live in a fallen world, so I don't want to overdo that. Your life is going to have brokenness in it, whether you sign up for it, whether you live everything out perfectly for the rest of your life somehow. You will still have brokenness in it because the world that you live in is broken. But quite often, there's, there's brokenness coming into our world because we have misplaced worship. It doesn't sit in the right place. And it's not about the right one. And everything else in our life now begins to get touched with disorder. And unfortunately, that's this woman's story. Chapter 4, verse 5. Jesus came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from the journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. It's significant. It's noon, the heat of the sun, midday, and this woman's coming to get water. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me? A woman of Samaria, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from himself as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, and this is an interesting change of subjects, isn't it? This is a woman who's saying, I am thirsty. And Jesus is about to put his finger on her, the desperate desert that she lives in. He said to her, go call your husband 
and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands and the one you have is not your husband. You have said, what you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive you are a prophet. I always love that line. <laughs> like This is like an overstating of the obvious here, huh? All right, before we get, because this conversation is about to take a shift now. We, we just introduced the topic of religion. Oh, you're a prophet. You're not just a, a guy who pulls water out of wells. So we're going to talk religion in just a second. But can you just take notice of the condition that this life is in? Here's this woman's experience in life. It's significant that the the, the story features what time of day it is that she's at this well. If you you know anything about the culture at that time, they didn't have plumbing, so they had to get water to be able to do life. But you would have typically have gotten water at two times in the day. First thing in the morning as the day began, or last thing in the day as the evening set in. But the problem with a woman like this who's living with a man who's not her husband in this town and who's been through five men is the last thing in the world she wants to do is interact with anybody. She gets those kinds of stares. People avoid her. Her world is broken and out of order. So she comes when it's least likely she'll run into anybody. High noon, heat of the sun, when nobody else from the town is going to be there. And she meets Jesus in that moment. Now this conversation is about to turn into the category of worship. And I think it's interesting that, that God inspired this whole story to sit together as one story. Because what you're going to end up with is, is a woman whose life is, is broken, painful, disappointing, full of tears, no hope in it. Desperately clinging to one man after another in fear, immorality, doing whatever she's got to do just to, just to keep it alive, man. See, when, when worship gets in the wrong place, you will invent all kinds of things in your life that are going to now sit in the wrong place. They're not going to serve your life. They didn't serve her life. Jesus turned this worship conversation here into this, this well of water. He said, you know, I've, I've got something that if it were in you, it would satisfy the desperation I hear in your voice and in your life. It would put an end to these desperate longings that are in you that you have sought in that guy and that guy and that guy. And that gets her attention. And he describes her life to her. I perceive you're a prophet. Notice this. Oh, you want to talk religion now? Verse 20. Well, you know, our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But, but you say it's in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. That's a very interesting thing here. You ever, you ever do this with people? Your conversation slides over into the religion category. And it's very interesting to see what questions are you going to bring up in that moment. Here she is in desperate need with the savior of the universe who can meet that need in her life. And she wants to enter into a common debate amongst her people. She wants to fight. 
Well, you Jews say you got to worship there, like that. And we say, so this is kind of like you telling somebody you're a Christian and their response is, oh, I, uh, so I guess that means you hate homosexuals, right? That, that's the next place that they go with that conversation. Or, wait, wait, so seriously, you actually believe that this person and that person are going to hell. You actually, you actually believe that. Right? So they just run after. If you're one of those people that you run after the most obscure stuff in your conversation about religion, you be sober-minded. You could have the answer to your soul standing right in front of your face and you're asking the wrong questions. You're debating stuff that that doesn't need to be what we talk about right now. What you need to hear, poor woman, is, is how do you get your soul satisfied? Why don't you ask that question? Well, unfortunately, she's been hanging around religious people who just taught her to debate about stuff on the edges. Instead of to hear what she needed to hear. And Jesus pulls this conversation into the category of worship. In verse 22, she says... You, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. Lady, let's talk salvation. Let's talk your need to be saved. Let's put this in the right category. But the hour is coming, he says, and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. That word Messiah means anointed one. An exclusive claim that there would be a person in the history of man who would be the only one like him, who we would look to uniquely like nothing else in the world. And she knew something of that existed. And Jesus blows her mind when he says, when he comes, he will tell us everything. Jesus said to her, I speak to you am he. I the exclusive one who sits in the category of worship that your life desperately is crying out for. I'm that one. And she hears him. She gets what he's saying. Just then his disciples came back, they marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar. I love that little phrase. I don't know what your life was about five minutes ago, but right now it's about something else, isn't it? I came here seeking water. That ain't what I'm interested in anymore. She left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the one? The one? The Christ? The anointed one? Is this him? And the town went out and were coming to him. Now, I, there is so much to love in this story. You understand the woman who cowered away, beaten up by others, abused by some of these men, I can easily imagine. Cast off, rejected by her family, not good enough, scowled at. Mothers had to make their children stop saying things in front of her in public. And she grabs her water buckets and she goes out when no one can find her. 
And she encounters the one who explains to her what worship really is. And she recognizes, are you the long-awaited one? And all of a sudden, her whole life is rescued. The woman who cowered away from town that no one could see goes running back, yelling for everybody, drawing attention to herself. She is a changed woman. She's not concerned about what you think about me anymore. This is the one. This is what worship does when it gets right in our hearts. Do you understand how it releases us from so many things? What a joy to be released from people. What a joy it is to not be bound up with, do you like me or not? Do I fit in or not? Are my ears too big? Am I wearing the right shoes? Is this the right dress? Do you like the way I speak? Am I funny? Did I get included? How come I'm not posted in your posts? This is the life this woman's living. How great of her to get to a place where she encounters the God. The one. The exclusive, unique one. And her whole life is changed. So what you just witnessed in this story was this is what it looks like when worship comes on the scene of the human soul. It satisfies us like nothing else does. Eric, you can come back up. When we started, listen for a second. When we started in Exodus with this idea that the God of the universe shows up. And he kind of said, I mean, the Ten Commandments, right? We respect the Ten Commandments, but Ten Commandments get a bad rap. In religion, we don't like the Ten Commandments. We respect them. They're there, they're in the Bible. We We don't like that approach. We don't like God showing up and saying, don't do that, don't do that, do that, don't do that. We we, we don't like that. We don't like the narrowness of God showing up and saying, have no other gods before me. Have nothing, zero, nothing, no person, no activity, no quest that occupies a greater place in your life than me. Don't even go there. There's something about us that kind of, boy, that sounds... So limited. So, do you understand the, the playbook behind that? The God who created you and me, He knows you and I cannot function right without worshiping Him supremely. Our lives will never go right. Our never, lives will never go well until He sits exclusively in that place of worship. And what Jesus describes to this woman, this is the outcome of that worship. Springs of water that rise up from within us and water the deserts of our lives. That's what worship does. That's what putting God in the exclusive place that belongs to him in our souls and in our lives. That's what it does to me. Please don't have some first grade theology that makes you feel like, oh... You know, a really gracious, loving God would just let me do whatever I really want to do. He knows what you're going to do. You're going to run out into the world like Satan and go, okay, what can I do? Who can I manipulate? What can I convince to get worship to come to me? That's why I'm here, ladies and gentlemen. I am here to work the crowd because ultimately I'm after your worship. And God knows, oh my, if you manage to get a little worship to come your way, it will blow your circuits and your life will become miserable because you can't handle that. And so God pulls us away from that and says, hey, how about we get this right? How about you just get me in the right place in your life? 
What place is that? A place of worship. Exclusive preeminence above everything else. A priority that matters in a way uniquely that nothing else can compete with. No other voice is his rival. Nothing is more satisfying. We long for nothing like we long for God. That's worship. And you and I are standing on the edges. We ventured into 2019. Do you understand? If you leave this word on January the 13th and don't pick it up again for the rest of the year, you have no hope to live in the script that God has created for your life. None. Are you going to die? No. Will your bank account get bigger? Maybe. Will you enjoy some stuff along the way? Could be. Do you understand you've missed the whole point though? Because I was created to worship God. And that's the most important thing everything else is going to sit in under my life as I travel through this chapter called 2019. Let's stand up together. Lord, thank you for gathering us here this morning. Lord, maybe we got stuck on those first thoughts at the beginning of the message that, that we've been coming in and out of these kinds of settings. We've been going to church for years, but it just doesn't seem to be having an impact on us. Something seems to be missing. Maybe there are some here who have their own version of the Samaritan woman at the well going on in their life. One pattern after another, pursuing something that you hope will fix life. And maybe you haven't had six chapters of that, but you've had a few. It's just not fixing things. Feel as empty as you did at the beginning. Few distractions, but here you are right back again. Listen, if you're here today and you can say you've had some kind of knowledge about God, you've even acknowledged that He exists. Maybe you've even taken some time to be in a church or to read something about him. Those, those are something. There's acknowledgement there. There's some curiosity there. Some level of interest there. But those words are not the same word as worship. God is not merely looking for you to acknowledge him. He's looking for you to worship him. He's he's not interested in you being curious about him. He's looking for you to worship him. If you're here today and you've maybe been around God, but you you don't know that ever in your life you've stopped and say, God, I want to belong to you and I want to worship you. I want my life to be about worshiping 
you. I, I want you to have the most important place in my life that nothing else competes with. And God, I know I won't be perfect in that, but my heart's desire is that nothing is more important to me than you. If, if this morning you find yourself in that place, I'm going to pray a prayer and, and you can voice this to God. If it's the words that you are meaning in your heart, consider them and pray them if they are yours. Say, God, I've known things about you. And in some ways, I think you've been a part of my life. But this morning, I know that you wanted much more than that with me. You wanted my heart's affection. You wanted my ultimate trust. You wanted me to deposit my hope for life in you above all other things. Lord, I hear that and I need that. So this morning, this morning, Lord, I turn to you in faith, in trust, entrusting my life to you. Jesus Christ, I thank you that you lived a life and died a death in my place to forgive my sins and to bring me to God the Father. This morning, I accept what you did from me. Receive you into my life as my God to be worshipped with everything that I am from this day forward. Lord, in every way that I know, I want you to be the most important person in my life. And your kingdom to be the most important thing about my life. So Lord, today, I am yours. Meet the deepest needs of my soul. They are here. I cannot find the answers in myself. I look to you and trust myself to you. Or for all of us who are here, who are starting a new year, Lord, with so many noisy things. Lord, we every... We lift up our eyes, Lord. It's just one person after another modeling a life that doesn't look to you. It doesn't have time for you. It doesn't need you. Well, that's not the life we want. But we're here this morning declaring, God, I don't want that life. I want a life that turns you into some hobby. Some sideshow to the things that are really important. God, I don't want my emotions and my affections and the things that I adore and speak highly of to be about something else besides you. God, I thank you for so many things to enjoy, but Lord, I want all those things to sit way beneath who you are to me. So God, would you protect us, Lord, as we venture into life in this coming year? That we don't lose the sense of worship of you as being the most important thing about us. Lord, that's our great desire. This morning and throughout this year, Lord, lead us deeper and deeper into 
worshiping you.